So let's look at the text. Revelation chapter 1, last week I read the first phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the title of the book. That's the abbreviated title. The entire title of the book is really the first two verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto Him to show unto His servants which things which must shortly come to pass. And He sent and signified it by His angel unto His servant John who bear record of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that He saw. That's the title of the book. It's the title of the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ. So we have a prologue here that gives us the name and the purpose of the book. The source of this book, is it John the Apostle? Who's the source of this book? God. And who did God give this prophecy to? No. To Jesus Christ. And then Jesus Christ gave it to who? To give to John. An angel who recorded it for John. So the source of this prophecy is not John. John would be what's called a... Does anybody know this word? Amanuensis. Paul often had an amanuensis. Or amanuensis. What's that mean? Did Paul write the book of Romans? Yeah, a scribe. Somebody that writes for him. In fact, if you look at the end of Romans, there's a man named Tertius that say, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, send you my greetings. You see, Paul probably had some eye problems after his incident on the road to Damascus. That may have been the thorn in the flesh he referred to. And he, you know, he tells the Galatians, you, know, you see what large letters I have written unto you. You know, which might be a reference to the, the large script he had to write because he had trouble seeing. But in some cases, Paul actually had an amanuensis write for him because he wasn't able to do it. So he dictated to Tertius what to write. Tertius wrote it. Jesus Christ dictated to John what to write through his messenger. John wasn't the author per se. He was the amanuensis. He was the scribe. Now, Somebody look up Mark chapter 13, verse 32. It tells us here that this prophecy was given by God the Father to Jesus Christ to reveal unto the church via a messenger. So in other words, Jesus Christ affixes His signature and His endorsement to the book. If you read the end of the book, or the end of chapter 22, you'll see that Jesus Christ affixes His signature to it. Directly. Mark 13.32 Someone. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. What day is that speaking of? When Jesus returns. Knoweth no man, but the Father, neither the Son. Well, guess what? God revealed it to Jesus the Son. And so Jesus the Son does know because it's been revealed to Him since the time of Mark 13 and therefore He turns around and gives it to John. So it has been revealed to Him. It was revealed to Him by the Father. Now I know that might create some uh, hard understandings in terms of the relationships that exist within the Trinity, but it is revealed. 
We can rest upon the authority of God's Word that God the Father at some time subsequent to Jesus' statement here revealed these things to Him. If you go to Acts chapter 1, His disciples asked Him, Lord, are You going to fulfill the promises to Israel? Are You going to restore them as a kingdom? Which proves that they understood those promises as not being related to a new body in the church. And Jesus didn't deny that. He said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has appointed in His power. So Jesus acknowledges that those promises were there to be fulfilled. He didn't rebuke them and say, well, you know what? They're not going to be fulfilled in Israel. We're going to put them on this new body, this, this body of the church, and spiritually or allegorically upon. He didn't say that. He just said, it's not for, your, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that God has put in His power. See, God has put all of these things in His power from time immemorial. immemorial. Some people have a problem with that. When I was on the college campuses last week, I kept getting questions like, how could God hold me responsible for sinning when He created us in the beginning and He knew we would sin and He knew this and He created me this way? You know, I could get into a debate about that, but the, the answer is very simple because Paul gives it in Romans chapter 8. Who are you to say to the one that made you, why have you made me this way? Who are you? God is the potter, we are the clay. If He wants to fit some vessels to honor and some vessels to dishonor and destruction, that's His business. Who are we to question that? What if God, willing to make His mercy known to vessels appointed to mercy, poured down wrath and judgment on vessels appointed to destruction? What if that's His plan? That's what He does. I don't have a problem with that. He's God. God doesn't contradict Himself. Everything that happens is in God's plans and power, not man's. You know, the answer is to humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before Him as your Maker. And then He'll draw nigh to you and give you understanding of these things and show you what He did through Jesus Christ on the cross. But there's just such an arrogance when it comes to God. And the easiest way we can rebuke that is to say, who are you? Who are you to answer to the one that made you? Why have you made me thus? That sounds harsh, but that's the answer Paul gives in Romans chapter 8. But God has, holds these things in His hands. Time, season, specifics. Nothing can overthrow that. It will happen. That doesn't give me a fatalistic worldview that says, oh, what will be, will be. As a Christian, I understand that God is in control of these things and it's a magnification of His grace in my life. When He controls all of these things, why didn't He give me a spirit of hatred or rebellion? Or why didn't He allow me to go the ways of the world? Why did He save me? It's a magnification of His grace. And like those elders there in chapter 4 of Revelation, I want to fall down on my face before Him because of His grace. But people love their sin. That's why they want to blame God for it. But God holds all these things in His power. The time of Christ's coming, the season, the specifics. What He's revealed to us, He's revealed for our edification and comfort so that we can have an understanding of the times. And every detail wasn't hidden from the Son. It was revealed to the Son. And those parts of it that God deemed important to share with us through Jesus Christ were then revealed to John and written down in this book. So we kind of learn all of that right there in the title. Some amazing truth there. Now it says here at the end of verse 1 that, he was, that, 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 that Jesus Christ was going to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass. Now 
This does not mean soon. That's not what that means, that, that phraseology there. What it means is that when it begins, it will happen quickly. So when these things begin, particularly in terms of the last days or Daniel's 70th week, it's going to happen swiftly. This isn't something that's going to be drawn out over ages and decades and centuries of time. It's going to happen quickly. When it begins, my friends, it's going to wrap up with swiftness. Somebody read 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Second Peter 3, 9 and 10. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but His, but his long suffering toward us, and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You want 10 to Yes. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Okay. Why are these things not happening today in terms of God's the, the wrath of God and, and the, the, the um, completion of the church age and, and the pouring out of the judgments in the tribulation period? Why are they not happening right now? Because God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. God sees everything. He has a plan and purpose established before, aid, the time, before time began. And that plan and purpose included a time in which He would wait. Because He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. But verse 10 is very important. But the day of the Lord will come. It will come. It will come as a thief in the night. And when it comes... It will happen quickly. It will happen quickly. Seven years is a very quick period of time and there's a lot that's going to take place in that time of tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, as it's called in the Old Testament. And it's going to happen like this. When it falls apart and Antichrist rises, his kingdom will be short. It won't be like the Roman emperors of old. It won't be like the Greeks of old or the great kingdoms that withstood the test of time. It won't be like America and its democracy which has lasted for 200 years. He'll rise to ultimate power and then it'll fall. Once the wheels of God's wrath in the last days begin to turn, it will, it will transpire quickly. I believe the beginning of that is coming. I believe that these things for us today are what's imminent. Imminent means it could happen at any time. Now, we'll get into more of a discussion of this later, but these things, when they begin, when the tribulation period begins, it begins with the signing of a treaty between Antichrist and the people of Israel. I don't know exactly what that looks like. That's what Daniel says, that in the 70th week, he'll confirm a covenant. And in the midst of that week, three and a half years later, he'll break it, set himself up as God. Most of Revelation takes place in the latter half of that period. Some of it in the first half. But we're not looking for these things as Christians. We're not looking for that. We're looking for Christ to come and take us out. Just as He took Enoch out before the judgment of the flood. Just as He took Lot out of Sodom 
before He rained fire down from heaven. We're looking for the church age to finish. We're looking for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. And we're looking for the Holy Spirit to be removed from the earth. And we'll talk about this later. These things are revealed in Paul's Thessalonian epistles and so forth and so on. But we're looking for that rapture, that catching out of the church. That could happen at any time, my friends. It could happen today. There's no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled. And once that happens, at some point, these wheels of God's wrath and of wrapping up and fulfillment of prophecy and wrapping up all things and ushering in the millennium will transpire quickly. We are living, I believe, in the last days. But even if not, these things are imminent as they have been imminent throughout all of history. The only way Christ's coming can be spoken of to the church in terms of being like a thief in the night can be if the church doesn't know when He's coming. Well, Revelation spells out when He's coming in terms of to overthrow Antichrist. We just calculate Daniel's 70th week, you know, seven years from the signing of the treaty, Jesus is going to come back. So that's not imminent. Christ's coming can only be imminent if He comes secretly to rapture His church. Just like the bridegroom does in a Jewish wedding. He comes in, He carries the bride off in the night. And they go and spend a period of time together before they come back and announce the wedding. We'll talk a little bit about that more later. But when things happen, they must shortly come to pass. Now it says here in verse 1 that not only will these things shortly come to pass, but that He sent, or Jesus sent and signified this prophecy by His angel unto His servant John. That word signified there in the original language indicates that there is going to be, or there is a use of signs and symbols in the book of Revelation to convey spiritual truth and reality. John saw things unfold, and then he described what he saw in terms that he knew and used symbolic language. But these were not obscure, dark metaphors. They're meaningful symbols, as we will see, that are either explained right here in the book of Revelation or they're explained elsewhere in Scriptures. Now, I find it very interesting to think that John saw things happening and described them in terms that he knew in his day. Now, I'm trying to imagine John looking at the battle of Armageddon that would involve modern military technology. I find it very interesting that he describes the sixth seal of God's judgment in Revelation chapter 6 as the, as the sun growing dark and the moon turning to blood and there a great earthquake and the powers of heaven shaken and the sky departs as a scroll and comes back together again. What do you think he was seeing? Has anybody ever seen what happens when a nuclear bomb is detonated? Does the sun go dark? Does that haze and that nuclear winter per se give a red tint to the sky? What happens to the scroll, the, the, the sky when that mushroom cloud forms? It's like a scroll. It rolls back and there's a shaking. Perhaps John will see a nuclear holocaust there. Makes sense to me. So you have a meaningful symbol that can translate into things we see and know today. When it says that the mark of the beast in the King James Version will be in the forehead or in the right hand. John spoke truth. When this talk of microchips 
being inserted into people to track movements. When this talk came out, I believe Dr. Falwell up at Liberty was on record saying, oh, we don't need to worry about that. That's not the mark of the beast because the Bible says it's on the forehead or on the right hand. My King James Bible doesn't say that. New King James Bible says it's on, but there's a difference between on and in. And with microchip technology and the things we do with pets today, it's not hard to see that there will be a mark that people are required to take, a mark implanted in them that will allow them to buy and sell. And that without this mark, you can't do anything. So John saw things unfold, he described what he saw, and he used meaningful signs and symbols to do so. Symbols are always in the Scripture defined by context and by the whole context of Scripture. You can't just pull them out and force a meaning on them. And that's what's the problem with those other three views of interpretation. That often happens and then the interpretations contradict themselves. Some would see Antichrist as a Roman Catholic Church persecuting the Reformers. Some would see Antichrist are interpreted in history as a Roman Emperor. You know, there's no uh, standard method of interpreting the symbols. Outside of a symbol's immediate context and the whole context of Scripture, it's very dangerous to try to interpret it. Because Peter said the Scriptures are not of any private interpretation. I'll finish up verse 1 here. The things written must shortly come to pass. In other words, when they begin, they'll happen quickly. These things were signified. In other words, they were given using meaningful signs and symbols. And they were sent to John by his angel. Revealed to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ sent them to John through a mediator or an angelos as written in the Bible. What does that word angelos or angel from the Greek mean? Does anybody know? Does it mean wings and a halo, robes? This means messenger. Messenger. A heavenly messenger. Could an angel be a human being in the Greek language? Yeah, it could be a human being. When it's used in the Bible, that word angelos is spoken of as a ministering spirit. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 1 that angels are ministering spirits. When Peter, however, was thrown in prison in Acts chapter 12, and then God will let him out of prison. Remember the young lady came to the door and saw him? And she went back to tell him and the people said, you're crazy. That's, maybe, that's not Peter. That might just be his what? His angel. So they thought he'd been killed and his angel or his spirit was coming to tell them something in a ministering fashion. An angel is a heavenly messenger. It could be Michael, Gabriel, or it could be a ministering spirit sent from God to reveal something. And when you read a couple of passages in Revelation later, we wonder if this angel was not a messenger in the sense of Michael or Gabriel, but if it wasn't perhaps one of the Old Testament prophets, one of the spirits of the Old Testament saints sent to reveal these things to John. In Revelation chapter 22... At the end of the book, this angel or this messenger reveals himself. Verse 6.
I'm sorry, verse 16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. So Jesus said, I've sent my angel or my messenger. And you go back in, in verses 8 and 9. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard them and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then he said unto me, Do not do this, or see that thou do it not. For I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. So this messenger identifies himself as being of his brethren the prophets. Now when Jesus appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, who stood there with Him? Moses and Elijah. So God often used the spirits of Old Testament prophets, or He did on occasion use the spirits of Old Testament prophets in something He was doing. When Saul went to the witch of Endor to inquire about what would happen in the battle with the Philistines, who is it that appeared to Saul? Samuel, his spirit. Samuel said, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. I think that's evident that Saul, despite his problems, ultimately was a man of faith in some sense and didn't go to hell. He went to paradise, Abraham's bosom. It's a place that's empty now. It was emptied when Christ rose from the dead. Believers now can go directly into the presence of God. But this angel, this messenger that reveals these things to John was probably one of the Old Testament prophets. That spirit, a ministering spirit, what an angel does. John says in verse 2, I'm going to try to finish this up real quickly, verse 2. John says that he was an eyewitness of everything that would follow. An eyewitness. Angel unto his servant John, verse 1, who bear record of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. So John isn't just writing a story. He's not just writing a myth. He's writing down what he saw with his own eyes. Just as the apostles wrote down what they saw with their own eyes when Jesus rose from the dead. Eyewitness testimony. More than 500 eyewitnesses saw Jesus Christ after His resurrection and interacted with Him. Ate with Him. Fellowshiped with Him. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 1-9, through 9, John, Peter, and James go with Jesus up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus is revealed to them in His glory. The glory with which He will return to earth. Now it's funny because right there before that happened, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, Jesus said something. Somebody read that. Matthew 16, 28. I'm going to finish here real quickly. I just want to end with verse 2. Matthew 16, 28. What did Jesus say about people standing around Him? Verily I say unto you, there shall be some standing here which shall not taste of death in other words, there were people standing there, somebody standing there, at least one person, who would not die until they saw the Son of God coming in His kingdom. Some would look at that on the surface and say, well, Jesus died and all the apostles died. Jesus rose from the dead and went to heaven. He hasn't come back and all the apostles are dead. So Jesus lied. What's the very next verse say? 
Matthew 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. So I find it interesting that the very next thing written about is the Mount of Transfiguration. What did Peter, James, and John see on that mountain? They saw the Son of God coming in His power. They were transported through the ages and saw the Son of God in His glory as He will be when He returns. And Moses and Elijah, they're ministering to Him. And I believe as we get later in the book of Revelation and we read about those two witnesses, those two street preachers that will preach Jesus Christ and the judgment of God in the last days, I believe that is Moses and Elijah. And I'll explain why when we get to it. But these men truly did live to see Christ coming in His glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Even more so, John here in this book actually lives out the very things that Jesus said there in Matthew 16. He was alive and He was transported down through history to see the coming of Christ in Revelation 19. So even if you don't understand and see the Mount of Transfiguration as fulfillment of that, this whole book of Revelation is fulfillment of what Jesus said. John did not taste death until he literally saw the coming of Christ. In fact, John, in chapter uh, uh, 4, it says, A door is opened into heaven, and, 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 and a voice like a trumpet said, Come up, hither. And John was immediately translated into the throne room of heaven. I think that's a picture of the church, the rapture of the church. John went to this place, just like Paul. Paul spoke of having that experience where he was caught up to the third heaven. We don't know exactly what that means. But John, like Paul, was transported and saw these things in fulfillment of what Jesus declared. He was an eyewitness. Now Peter talks about seeing Jesus Christ in His glory in 2 Peter chapter 2. Or chapter 1, I'm sorry. Talks about how, you know, we're not following cunningly devised fables when we have talked to you about the coming and power of the Lord Jesus. But we were eyewitnesses of this majesty. And he talked about what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, which leads me to believe that that incident was the fulfillment of Matthew 16, as, was, as is the book of Revelation. But he talked about how they saw Jesus transfigured, how they heard the voice from heaven. They experienced these things. But in verse 19, he says, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. In other words, there's something even more sure than that eyewitness testimony. Not the fact that Peter saw it is what made it sure. Oh yeah, that was powerful testimony, powerful evidence. But there's a more sure word of prophecy. And that's the Word of God. And then he goes on to say that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. Well, if that's true, then the allegorical method goes out the window when it comes to Revelation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. When the Scriptures were written... Men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Therefore, the Scriptures are even more sure than the eyewitness testimony. Friends, when we read this book of Revelation, John was an eyewitness. Yes, that's powerful evidence that what what was written was exactly what he experienced. But more sure than that is that John spoke in this book by the mouth of the Holy Ghost. And the fact that God Almighty inspired it, preserved it down through the ages, and gives testimony... Today, even today through His Spirit. That's a more sure word of prophecy. You can't always trust what your eyes see. There's a video on YouTube that was filmed out near where I live. In, I think it's in Cleveland County. 
It took place in 2010 where somebody videotaped what they say was Nobby or, or Sasquatch running across the road. Now, you can look at that video and you can think, well, man, that could be a Sasquatch. But you could also look at that video and say, there's no way that's a Sasquatch. Can't trust your eyes. John was an eyewitness, but that's not why we believe this book. We believe this book because the Holy Spirit has given testimony to its truthfulness, and that is a more sure word of prophecy. I want to just conclude with this today. We've only gotten to, through two verses, and once these matters of introduction are out of the way, we can begin to move more efficiently. It says here that John bear record of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He did that in his writings. He does that here in this book. He bears record of God's Word and of Jesus Christ. I just want to ask you today, is that your testimony as a Christian? Does your life like John's exist to bear record of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ? To bear record of the Word of God is to live the Word of God. It's not just to speak it, it's to live it. To bear record of the testimony of Jesus Christ is to speak the Gospel. Is that you? Is that your testimony? An important part of the Gospel, as we shall see here in this book, John deemed it important enough to write about, he deemed it important enough to call it the testimony of Jesus Christ, is the coming of Christ. Is your life bearing record of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, which includes His coming? Are you living as if He's coming back to set up the kingdom? If you're living that way, then you're not holding on to earthly things. You're not trying to build an earthly kingdom because you know and understand that these things will fall. You're living as a pilgrim. One who bears record of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ lives as a pilgrim in these days. Not attached to earthly things. We live in the world, but not of it. And we're proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ with our mouth. Living it, proclaiming it. That was John's testimony. May that be ours. And friends, an important part of the Gospel. Yes, Jesus Christ, in the simplest, most simple form of the Gospel, was crucified according to the Scriptures, was buried, and after three days He was risen from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15. But the Gospel inevitably, in its fuller sense, involves the coming of Christ. Paul the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that God has reserved a crown of righteousness for those that love the appearing of Christ. Do we love His appearing? Are we looking for it? Are we preaching it? When Paul preached to the Greeks, those that had no knowledge per se of the Old Testament Scriptures, when he preached to the Greeks at Mars Hill in Athens, he said this, after he mentioned the unknown God and what God had done, he said, God has winked at your idolatry, but now He's calling you to repent because He has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained. And He proved it by raising Him from the dead. So Paul's preaching to heathen. His gospel preaching to Greek philosophers and heathen necessarily included the judging of Christ at His second coming. We must preach the second coming of Christ when we preach the Gospel. That is to bear record of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And we'll see later in the book that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So I encourage you today, live like you're in the last days. 
and preach the last days as we preach the gospel. Bear record of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry we've run long today. I just This book is so full and I want you to get things out of it. Um, and things will move a little swiftly, more swiftly now because we're out of introduction. Anybody have any questions? If not, I will wrap things up. We'll pray over the food and, 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 uh, and, and, and proceed with, with the afternoon. Anybody? Again, feel free to subscribe to the podcast online or to go back and listen to the messages if you have any questions. Okay? And check out that website, ClarenceLarkinCharts.com. It has some really good illustrations of the book that will provide you with some background information. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank You for this opportunity to study Your book. I know it's been long, but Father, as even I am restless standing here teaching, I think of those believers around the world in which time is of no essence. You know, They'll sit around the Word of God and around the preacher of God three, four hours in the afternoon. And I know our culture and the way we've grown up is different, but we trust Your sovereignty. I just pray that uh, You will continue to speak to us through this very important book of the New Testament, that it will... Compel us to study all of Your Word and will compel us, Lord, to bear record of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ just as John did in his day. Lord, we look for Your coming. May we not be as those foolish virgins who didn't have enough oil, but maybe we be ready for the bridegroom to come and take His bride away. Bless the food You've given us today. Bless our time of fellowship, Lord. The local church is about fellowship. important part of that is to be able to edify and encourage one another through the breaking of bread and, 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 and the fellowship of conversation. So we thank You, Lord, uh, for what You're teaching us and may we be found faithful stewards. In Jesus' name, Amen.